Please open your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 and verse 20. Just remind us where we are as we've moved through the, the, the book of Genesis. We've seen the fall, uh, the choice of Adam and Eve to sin against the one commandment that God had given them. And then we see God come and pronounce judgment on the man and the woman and a curse on the serpent and on the ground. And so it's following this judgment that they have both just heard that we now pick up in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, as we read it, as we hear it proclaimed, would you fill us with your spirit that we may be hearers? Lord, empower me to speak your words today. Make them useful For your glory and for your name's sake we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I remember having a kind of a reunion lunch with a a pastor that I served under early in my years in ministry. The very first pastor I served under. And as we had gotten together, some time, it had been some time had passed, I was trying to express my gratefulness to him uh, for all the energy that he poured into me and the time that he invested in my life, uh, and not to mention the risk um, of hiring me uh, because I was so young. And, but I joked with him, and I said, you know, you kind of ruined me because Trinity was the first PCA church that I was ever a part of. And I said, I came to expect every PCA church to be like Trinity, and I have yet to find one that has been like this. And he laughed about it because he knew what I was saying. And what he said was, in essence, that church doesn't exist anymore. He still pastored the church at the time before he retired. He said, Seth, that church doesn't exist anymore. And if you came back today to the same church, it wouldn't be the same. He said that was a unique time in your life. And indeed, it was a unique time in the life of the church. There was particular harmony. There was warmth of relationships. It was just a a special time even for him in the life of the church that he remembered during those years in the mid-90s. Well, what he was expressing is the idea that, you know, movies, books, poems, songs, you can't go home. They've all tried to capture this idea that you, you can't go home. Even when you go back to the same geography, to the same place that you have memories Things just aren't the same. There's something that moves on with time. And a lot of times we grieve this. Uh, We we think of this in terms of wishing that we could go back. How many people have you known in your life that were still stuck back in, my kids will get this, in 1982, right? If a coach had just put me in in the game, I could have won state championship. You know, people that continually bring things back up, they're stuck in, uh, in, in a time in history. 
And, you know, we, we connect with this. You know, if you think of a favorite act who walks off the stage for the last time and you're kind of saddened by it or a show that you've watched for some time comes to an end or your favorite player comes to his last at-bat or if you've seen these videos on YouTube with the police officers before they retire, they give the final radio call and how emotional it is and there's a sense of, of grief with that passing that we all can kind of connect with and identify with in some way because as we live life, we realize that there are things that pass with time. Well, that's about as close as I can get to what is happening here because this is something that is way more than just the passing of time. Something has really shifted. It's more than just an era that Adam and Eve couldn't go back to, a place and time of fond memories or pleasant uh, times that they recalled. Something radically changed at the fall and they literally could not go back. Um, this is literally a, a, a place and, that is gone as well as the time. The Garden of Eden is no more. Paradise has been lost. And it's something, again, that we feel a great weight of sadness because we all dream of paradise. We all dream of life as the way it should be. The world is the way it should be. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more fear. And yet, we're not there. We can't get a hold of it. And so it, for many of us, is, is a far-off hope that we long for. And so it's important for us as we consider this, these, kind of the, the, the end of the garden scene, because next week we begin, we pick up with Cain and Abel. Uh, this is the end of the garden scene, that we consider what it is about the garden that we've lost and what it is about the garden that we hope for in the future. As we've seen all along, The grace of God has been there. It's something that sometimes when we read through the book of Genesis, we don't necessarily see, but it's here. It's here even in this exile as God pushes them out and sets up the the, the guard, as it were, to protect them from ever going back to the garden. Uh, God could have created humans perfectly, as he did, but without the, the ability to sin. He created Adam and Eve perfectly, but with the ability to sin, and they chose to sin. He could have created them without the ability to sin. But without that, there would have been no grace. Without that, there would have been no salvation, no buying back, no redemption, no atonement. There wouldn't have been the need for those things. There would have been no salvation. The fall, as awful as it was, became a part of the story of God's redemption that he would redeem a people for himself, for himself. God allowed Adam and Eve to choose to sin, but it wasn't just so that he could show his righteous judgment, which would have been very right and just for him to do, right? He's God. He is just. But also to show his mercy and his amazing love and grace toward us. You see, without understanding the, the depth of what happened in the garden, we can't really understand the glory of the gospel. The amazing grace that we sing about, the love of Christ that has been poured out, that has been lavished on us, if we don't first understand the depth of our own sin. And this is why Paul could write this later on, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It is this, the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus that provides the hope for this sad story. This is, again, more than just a bygone era. Something tragic was broken here. Something uh, deep happened. And the only hope for this, for these two and for all of their descendants, including all of us, was the glory of this immeasurable grace that's been shown to us. Let's begin in verse 20. And if we, were, if we had time to read all the way through chapter 3, you might notice that verse 20 seems a little bit out of place. It seems a little bit disjointed, like it doesn't belong there. They sinned, God announced the, the judgment on the man and the woman, the curse on the ground and the serpent, and then all of a sudden there's this statement about Eve and her name. It's, why does this belong here? Why did God insert this here in his word? And we might be tempted if we were reading it just to kind of, yep, we know that, check, let's move on. But there's more to this verse than I think first meets the eye. So it's important we don't skip over it. Here, Eve becomes known by her name. Adam gives her a proper name. Up until this point, the word for, and it's what we've seen all throughout, has just been woman. Uh, It's interesting, the word for Adam is man. So in the Hebrew, it's man and woman, but it gets translated and assigned, in a sense, Adam, become, that becomes his proper name, man. Uh, but here, Eve gets a proper name. And it is something that is significant of who she is, the mother of all living. It's from the Hebrew word for life. She is the mother of all living. From her would come every descendant who would ever live. Think of this, the one who had been tempted first, who felt the shame of having given in, who listened to the serpent, is reminded here that she has purpose. It's one of the beauties of redemption. So often we think that we can out God, or that certain sins disqualify us from His love and His grace shown toward us. But here, Eve is shown that she has this incredible purpose. We already know what that is, the mother of all living, but in particular, the promise that was given that we saw in verse 15 last week, that from Eve would come the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so this is something I think that we ought to stop and remember, that our sin cannot surpass the greatness of God's love or the purposes that he has in both his creation and his redemption. And if you need more evidence of this, go to Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, Faith, as we call it, right? You've got all of these people, and if you look at it, it, it you can sometimes be tempted to look at the people who we think of as more of the heroes of the faith, but that's not the purpose of, of, of Hebrews 11. It's actually to show how faithful God is. Because in Hebrews 11 are a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily be in our Hebrew books or uh, Hebrew books, hero books, Uh, (laughs) in our hero books, right? There are people in that list that we wouldn't hold up necessarily in such high esteem. The point is, the story isn't over. 
that even though Adam and Eve had sinned, God was going to be faithful, and he was going to carry on. And that story is true in your life as well. You're not hopeless. Jesus is more than anything you've ever done. But the name of Eve also shows us something as well of the faith of our first parents. They trusted the promise that God had given them, that the seed of the woman would indeed crush the head of the serpent. You see, because God believed, or, or sorry, because Adam believed God and took him at his word, he gave the woman a name that demonstrated that faith. Eve would be the mother of all living. From all living would come the one born of a woman, a descendant of hers, who would fulfill the promise of God. Her seed would crush the serpent's head. Now, I am almost certain that Adam didn't think it would take so long. My guess, I mean, if you read the New Testament and all the promises that Jesus would return, the early church was ready for Jesus to return then. I don't think they had any idea this was going to go on for 2,000 years. I think every generation feels that way. And because of that, I think Adam and Eve probably thought, maybe not their firstborn, but certainly their secondborn, definitely their thirdborn. I mean, you know who that would know. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but that certainly one of their descendants, that he would get to see the redemption that God promised. We're going to see more about that, that God's timetable is not our timetable. So it's good to remember two things here. The story isn't over. In our own lives, this is important to remember, in our own lives as we battle against sin and guilt, but also for those who we love, who we pray for, who we labor for in prayer to see God transform and change and save, that the story isn't over. We may be short on hope, but we are never hopeless. The other thing that's important to remember is God's promises are sure no matter how long they take. We often ask God, how can he take so long? That's one of the, 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 the calls of the, the psalmist. How long, O Lord? And so often you've probably experienced in reading through those psalms in your, in your own quiet times how meaningful those words because you, you feel it. How long, Lord, how long will this go on? How long will this last? How long until you fix this problem? It's something that we all struggle with as we see injustice, as we see suffering, as we see just our own struggle against sin. Remember these words from Second Peter 3. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. God is faithful. Not only do we see God's grace toward Adam and Eve in giving them the faith to trust Him, that we see evidence in that naming after they sin, but we also see it in His immediate care for them. His immediate care and His future care. What was the immediate need that Adam and Eve had physically. They had a, a very acute, immediate need. You remember what they had done to cover their shame? They had gotten fig leaves. And it says in verse 7 of chapter 3, it describes them as loincloths. Okay? This was basically vegetarian underwear. You know, it was vegetable underwear. It was, this was not a permanent solution. What was going to happen to the leaves of the fig tree, right? It's going to last a day or two going to crumple up, fall apart, and die. They needed a permanent solution, something that wouldn't tear apart. And God met that need. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. 
And the word for garments there is the, same, is, is the word for tunic. So instead of loincloths, he gives them the full. The tunic would have gone down to the knees or even the ankles. Uh, something that the priest had, had worn. This was a full, full piece of clothing. Something that would last, not made from leaves. But there's something bigger, of course, going on here, isn't there? Something more than just this immediate need of clothing them. The fig leaves that had, had, they had torn off from the plant would grow back. The, the, the fig tree had not sacrificed or suffered too much. Uh, the fig tree would survive. But the animals from which these skins had come gave their lives. They died. They were no more. They would not come back. So the immediate understanding of this text is that God met this need, a real need that our first parents had to clothe them. But I hope you see that there's something much bigger going on here, something greater, a greater need that they had. How would every priest have interpreted this passage when they read it in the nation of Israel? How would every priest have tried to explain this passage? How would they have thought about it? Think of the priestly duties. What were their duties? Right? Sacrifice. That you couldn't get into the temple without passing the, the altar where the sacrifice was happening. And so every priest of Israel would have looked at this passage with the knowledge of both sacrifice and atonement. So the blood that these animals shed, even though the animals, the specific animals aren't mentioned, is, is a whisper, maybe just a faint whisper of the one who would come and atone for all the sins. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world by shedding His own blood. God clothed them literally with animal skins, but He's pointing them and us to a more important clothing that He would accomplish for His people. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah chapter 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And we see this imagery carry out throughout Scripture of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ all the way to Revelation where the image is that we will have perfectly clean robes. That idea of we'll be clothed in His perfect righteousness will be perfectly holy. You who are trusting in Christ this day have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith in Him. Your shame is covered. The stain of your guilt is removed. You are filled with His very Spirit. His very Spirit lives within you, making His dwelling in your heart. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, the grace doesn't stop there. Even in this last section, verses 22 to 24, the exile of Adam and Eve, that they justly deserved. God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. So, that any judgment that they received was justly deserved, but even in it, we see God's loving kindness. Part of his plan was redemption, to buy back, to save a people for himself. And so in his infinite wisdom and love, God set forth a plan that allowed Adam and Eve to, to choose. They chose sin. And because of that, they justly deserved death. As I already mentioned, the day you eat, will eat of it, you will surely die. That's what God said. That's what they understood. And they broke that one commandment. With it, though, they also broke all of creation. Everything was shattered. The perfect world, paradise, was lost. 
But as Paul Harvey says, there's the rest of the story, right? There's more to the story. The rest of the story would include that promise of the crushing of the serpent's head by the atoning blood of the sacrificed Lamb of God to buy back or redeem his people for himself. And so in verse 22, we read this conversation among the Godhead, similar to what we we saw in, in the creation of man, this conversation among the triune God. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The like us that is here does not mean that Adam and Eve had become divine. That was kind of what Satan was alluding to in his temptation, that you'll be like God. He adds, your eyes will be opened. That part was true. It shows us some insight into how Satan often works, mixing truth with error. It's true their eyes were opened, but it wasn't open to anything glorious. It was open to, to the horrors now of sin and evil. Now they know not just good, now they know good and evil. They actually became less like God in the sense that in their disobedience, now they were sinners. Where before they were without sin, now their purity was lost. Their innocence was gone. And so, because of that, for God to send them away from the tree of life that was still in the Garden of Eden was actually a great mercy. Because had they, as he purported here, if they ate of the tree of life and gained eternal life from that, what would their lives with sin in their life had looked like? It would have been hell. It would have been eternal life with sin. There would have been no redemption. I mean, hell not in the the big H sense, but in the little H sense, that it would have been hellacious, that it would have been awful. Because there would have been no hope. There would have been no restoration. There would have been no fixing of the problem. There had to be redemption for eternal life to mean anything. We've all lived long enough to know what sin does to this world, to know that we don't want things to just keep going the way that they're going. We all long for the redemption. We all long for paradise. We all long for the way, for things to be fixed, to be the, the way that they should be. Another thing that's interesting here is the placement of the cherubim and a flaming sword. Where else in Scripture do we see cherubim? In Ezekiel and in Isaiah, we see cherubim surrounding or even guarding the throne of God. And another place that we see cherubim in Scripture is in the tabernacle and later in the temple. You remember the cherubim were stitched. They were sewn uh, images of cherubim into the veil itself on the inside and also on the Ark of the Covenant, the inlay, the two cherubim would have uh, been with their wings out over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where we see it. What are significant about those two places? The throne of God and the Holy of Holies. It's the presence of God. That's what's significant about the cherubim here. Here is this image that's being communicated by the presence of the cherubim that it is God's presence that Adam and Eve were now banished from. Don't think of the Garden of Eden at this point being this secret place in creation that's still there that your inner Indiana Jones wants to now go and 
do a search and find. It's, it's, it no longer, it's no longer there, right? It's not in this dimension. It's not in this world. The gates have been closed. The garden is gone because God's presence is gone at this point from Adam and from Eve. Only now will he begin to reveal himself in unique ways. And it starts to individuals, and then it starts to the people of God at Mount Sinai, They begin to get a taste of it. He guides them with the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. Then the tabernacle comes along, and they get to see it in a unique way there. They can't go into the Holy of Holies. Only one high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. So there's still this cut-offness, this far-awayness, even though God's showing himself, which makes the significance then of when Christ comes so much more powerful. What happened when Christ died on the cross to the veil? was torn in two. This miraculous event of the veil being torn in two that indicated God's satisfaction with the atonement that Christ accomplished. That He had indeed paid for the sins. That He had crushed the head of the serpent. And so no longer would God only show His presence behind the veil. The, the, the veil had now been torn in two. The word for... when it, John 1 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word for dwelt there is tabernacle, that, that He literally tabernacled among us. And then later, when it talks about the Holy Spirit coming to live in us, Paul describes it as making His temple within us. That God's presence... I don't think we understand this. I don't think we grasp all that this means for our lives, for how we live, for how we're empowered, for how we fight against sin, for how we make decisions, for how we move through life, that we have the very presence of God, His Spirit, indwelling us. Today is Pentecost Sunday, indicated by the the red drape on the cross. It's the day in the life of the church that we mark the sending of the Holy Spirit, the promised one that Jesus said before He left, I will send another helper, one like me, and He will convict the world of sin, He will instruct you, remind you of all that I've taught you. He will come to make His home in you. The words, let me read them from John 14. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And then Paul echoed this later. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have, whom you have from God. The God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden, whose presence was shared with them perfectly in communion, because of Christ's redeeming work, now lives in you and in me. His Spirit within you today, if you are trusting in Christ And so we thank God for His Holy Spirit. And it's one of the reasons why I pray that we will understand this and we'll grow in this knowledge. Because, again, I don't don't think I get it all. I don't think I realize just the impact of what it means that God's Spirit is within me, that His presence is within us. It's hard to believe. It's hard for, for many of us just to understand the concept. Or maybe... For some of us during some times in our lives, it just feels like God's a million miles away. Like we just, we're praying and we just, we, it just feels like He's gone. Or maybe it, you feel like your spiritual life is one of those, remember the paddle with the ball and the rubber band? 
you know, just choo, 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 just all over the place, right? And, you know, back and forth, up and down, that that is what we feel like spiritually at times. As I think of our spiritual walk, I think one of the things that makes it the most difficult to believe that His Spirit lives within us is just the reality of our fallenness. We're, we know we're sinners. We know it. We feel it on a daily basis, the weight of the struggle with sin. And it's, this, it's, it's the, often the deep down secret stuff. You know, if there was a reality television in your home, a camera in your home that filmed everything that you said, not to mention the stuff that's in our hearts, just the way we act just in our homes, you know, what would it show about us? And if there was a way to peek inside of our hearts, what would be seen there? And because you and I know what's in our hearts and in our lives, it's really hard to believe that God is indwelling us. We also think of the effects of the fall. We realize this in our own physical bodies as the aches and the pains increase, the the decline of our own health. How would God see fit to indwell us and make these bodies His temple? But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent that is our heavenly home, or sorry, is our earthly home, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to, be, to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Regardless of our struggle and fight against our own sin, regardless of the frailty of our own bodies, the Spirit has been given to us as a pledge, as a seal, as a guarantee that God will finish what He has started. In other words, every fight against sin and every ache and every pain and every struggle with life and death that we experience is a reminder of God's faithfulness. It is a reminder that God has overcome and will overcome all of these things, that He will consummate and finish the work that He began. He is faithful. He will do it. Paradise awaits. The true paradise. All will be made right in His time. So maybe we'd be faithful as we wait for the completion of what began in the Garden of Eden. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Spirit that You sent to live in us. And I pray that as we consider what happened in the Garden of Eden and this exile now, that Adam and Eve are now out from Your presence. They no longer enjoy the, the, the perfection of communion with You that as they now move forward in faith, trusting in the promise that you gave them, clothed with these animal skins, Lord, I pray that we look back to Adam and Eve and see how you did exactly what you said you would do, that you are faithful to every promise that you've made, and so that every promise that you've given us, you are also faithful, that you're believable, that we can hold on to you. 
And I pray that we would do just that, that your spirit would empower us to believe so that even when things don't make sense, even when we feel like everything in the world is against us, even when we think things just don't add up, Lord, that you would remind us of the seal and the pledge of your spirit within us that is ours until you return, that you are faithful to complete all that you've promised that you said you would do. So empower us by that then, Lord, to live our lives in a way that please you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.